I was only 16 for four days before I was murdered. I was just a kid. I had my whole life ahead of me. A lot of people have said really mean things about me over the years, but I was a good person. I believed in Jesus, and my faith was strong. I was never a devil worshiper. I was a devout Christian. I didn't overdose at a party. That's a lie. I was murdered. And my death is still ruled a suspicious death instead of a homicide. When is someone going to do something about it? You can make a difference. Please don't forget about me. listening to Beyond the Garden Gate, a Wiki Garden production. I'm G, and we'll be joined by our host, Mike, a little later on in the show. For now, though, let me just catch you up on a nearly 50-year-old cold case that's been heating up with some recent attention. Jeanette De Palma. By all accounts, she was a normal 16-year-old, slightly awkward and a bit of a goofball, like most teenagers. But she also has some very unique qualities. Friends and family would describe her as a kind soul who was extremely passionate about her church and religion, oftentimes seeking out wayward peers and with the best intentions, attempting to bring Christ into their lives. She was also considered to be mature, dependable, and very responsible for her age, which is why her parents trusted her enough to hop on a train and travel alone to see a friend. On August 7, 1972, however, she went out to do just that, but never returned home. After her concerned parents learned that she never in fact made it to her friend's house, they immediately knew something had gone awry and filed a missing persons report with the Springfield Township Police Department. While not much is known about the struggles of the De Palma family during that period of Jeanette's absence, it's well known that they had been feverishly trying to locate her, not only in Union County, but mostly in New York City. About a month and a half later, their search would come to a tragic end. On September 19th, a Dalmatian allegedly brought Jeanette's decomposing right arm back to its startled owner, who promptly notified the authorities. Within hours of this gruesome discovery, police organized the search and Jeanette's corpse was found, based down on a cliff in Springfield's Hudai Quarry, locally known as the Devil's Teeth. There was conflicting reports with the CSIs and officers who initially arrived on the scene. According to several testimonies given by sworn officers, her body was found adorned by various occult symbols. Crosses fashioned out of twigs and sticks surrounded her. Larger branches were arranged into the shape of a coffin, and even a halo made from stones crowned her skull. Adding to the mystery and esoteric air surrounding the discovery of her skeletal remains, lore has it that a witch was even called out to the scene to serve as a consultant and verify whether or not Jeanette could have been the victim of a ritual sacrifice. 
Other officers have stated for the record that no such occult paraphernalia existed on the scene, and what the other officers had interpreted as such was no more than simple random shapes. An investigation and autopsy followed, but neither were able to explain exactly what had led to her death. Her remains and clothing showed no clear evidence of foul play, but certain articles and possessions were missing. One in that of a crucifix she had been wearing and was hardly ever seen without, and her purse, although its contents were found dumped about 8 feet from a resting position. Drugs were not found on, in, or around the body, and for unknown reasons the coroner strongly suspected that strangulation was the actual cause of death. Not long afterwards, just around Halloween, the Daily News and Star Ledger began reporting that she may have been the victim of Satanists or by a coven of practicing witches from the nearby Wachung Reservation. A target of her religion is James Tate, the pastor of her family's church, explains it. And from there on out, panic ensued. A satanic panic. Justice for Jeanette is a group of concerned citizens. The group consists of Ed Salzano, Ali Zuell, and originally John Bancy. John is the nephew of Jeanette, and he passed away several years ago. But Ed and Holly were undeterred, and they kept trying to get to the truth. Ed is a retired private investigator who worked on a reality TV show, Finding Runaways in Manhattan, with Joe Pistone. Holly is a filmmaker, as well as model actress who worked in the media as well. When we were looking to do this episode, we were looking for a different angle besides what was written in the book. And I came across Justice for Jeanette. They have a website, a Facebook page, a Facebook group, and they continue to actively investigate the case here in New Jersey. And they've generated a fair amount of buzz being interviewed by NJ.com's Rebecca Everett, who also works for the Star-Ledger, and then also by Megan Palin of the Daily Beast in her recent article. So I decided to contact them and interview them. I took a ride to North Jersey, and I sat down with them. Here's that interview. Well, like I said, we wanted to do an interesting angle. I was looking around, and I saw you were Justice for Jeanette, and I saw what you were trying to do, and I read a little bit about it, and I said, wow, check this out. Did you watch the video on Facebook? No. I, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, I'm not really on too many social medias. Um, if you get a chance, we put so much information mm -hmm. into that video that basically tells the whole entire story, and very well, few people actually watch it. I watched one from last night that was from a Justice for Jeanette that's us. YouTube channel. Okay, that's probably And it was done in like her perspective yes, with her voice. Mm -hmm. Is that the video? Yeah. Fantastic job on that. Thanks. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I was like, wow, that's interesting to do it from that perspective. You know, it's very rare to find kindness anymore or empathy, let alone somebody being as selfless as you two guys are being and trying to get this thing rolling. That's got to be rewarded. It's got to be acknowledged. We've and, taken a lot of crap over the years. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. You know, 50 years now, I mean, if it wanted to be solved, it would be solved. Right. I'm just going to go out and say it. it's a multi-layer police cover-up. And, you know, we always say, like, it's a conspiracy of silence also. And, of course, they're very busy. And there's 10 yeah. new murders every day, right. I'm sure, that they have to deal with. But the fact that she was an, a Christian evangelist, I mean, this was a good kid. This was a kid that helped other kids at a very early age, and she was targeted for it, and um, she was murdered because of it. So why you did you, come why did you specifically personally get involved? It, well, I grew up in Maplewood, which is a couple towns over. I, okay. I was 10 years old when this happened, and I remember when it happened because Joan Kramer went missing that same week. So who's Joan Kramer? I didn't know either. So here's the rundown. 
Joan Kramer was a 24-year-old student at Columbia University. She originally went missing on August 1572 when she walked out of her home at 65 Crest Drive in South Orange, New Jersey, after a quarrel with her fiancé, a medical student at Columbia University. She had walked about a mile to the center of the South Orange Business District, according to the police, and then called a girlfriend about midnight to say that she was going to get a taxi to take her home. Witnesses have reported, however, that they had seen a man in an automobile drive up to her at Sloan Street and South Orange Avenue and offer her a ride. She had been missing for 13 days when two youths found her body in Elizabeth River Park in Union. An autopsy indicated that she had been strangled. Mary Collado of South Orange, New Jersey, testified that she saw Otto Neil Nielsen pick up a woman on the night Miss Kramer disappeared. Miss Kramer was the daughter of a feud executive, Julian Kramer. During the time Miss Kramer was missing, Another criminal, who was not her murderer, decided to use the opportunity to extort Joan's family for ransom money. And although his voice was recorded in several audio tapes, that individual was never identified or prosecuted. Otto Nielsen was later tried and acquitted in this case. To this day, Joan Kramer's murder is unsolved. And everybody freaked out for Halloween. They're like, you're not going out for Halloween this year. And we're like, why not? You know, we didn't know. And uh, so um, it always stuck with me. And then... So not a lot of people know, but if you grew up in this area um, and you're my age, I'm 59, uh, you live with the overshadowing of witchcraft and Satanism having gone on in the Watchung Reservation. Like you cannot have grown up in this area and not have heard about it because it was terrifying. It's in the newspapers. Um, somebody was killing animals and hanging them in the trees, and there was all sorts of. I mean, it was it was terrifying as a kid growing this up. This is stuff that's documented. Oh, oh yeah, not deniable, undeniable. Right. Okay. As a matter of fact, most of the stuff that we're going to tell you today, it, and if you saw the video, is stuff that came right out of the newspapers, right from the very beginning. And you may know sometimes the. I best. saw some of the clips you guys had. They were great. You know, you can't find that stuff online, but you have the clothes. Am I pushing the witchcraft Satanism yeah. end of it? No. We've done everything we, we possibly can to to, to to cross it off. Be like Because everybody's first thing is, oh, that's BS. That's, that was all just fanfare, you know, sensationalism for the newspaper. And so we've really focused, like, okay, let's cross. Let's go and cross that off. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't ever do it. I mean, and so I don't know if you saw the article. They brought a witch to the crime scene. So you got involved basically because you lived with the shadow of this when you, from when you were growing up and it affected you as a child. Um, and you saw that nobody did anything about it. You used to hear things well, the, through the grapevine. I knew about that, it. It didn't okay. get me started. I didn't actually okay. get started until I met Holly. Okay. And um, you want to tell the story? Yes, I'm a filmmaker and okay. I was making a short film about a girl who was being chased by a psycho killer in the woods. And I needed help editing that film, so I met up with Ed through a mutual friend in um, Springfield, New Jersey. Uh, We were basically editing the film, so I wanted to take a break and uh, to actually go see a movie. And we uh, wound up in the Watchung Reservation when we took a wrong turn. And I got out and I was looking around and I was like, something happened here? Just this weird feeling. Yeah, yeah, that overall I can't explain it. And Ed said, yeah, something happened here. I I don't quite remember what happened. It was like an unsolved murder about a young girl. Didn't give me a lot of detail. So I said, okay. I didn't really think 
made much of it and we went to see the movie and we came back and it just kept digging at me like what was this what was this unsolved murder a young girl in the woods like it started to eat at me so I started researching on the internet just anything I could and I came across this 16 year old message board at the time and it was actually removed now um, topics.com and had all these clues about what happened to Jeanette De Palma, who they think did it. And there wasn't really a, I mean, there was a lot there, but it was so much to sift through. And right. I didn't know anything about the case. And I just really started to deep dive in there. And uh, I, I think it took a, a couple days and I, I have found um, her, her nephew. Now you found uh, Weird New Jersey first. It was Weird New Jersey yeah. first? We, you know, because Weird New Jersey really did a couple of issues mm -hmm. on her. And I didn't really remember all of the details. And Holly found out that found Weird New Jersey. And we started looking into it. And um, then there was a message board that I think it was, it was um, curious. I think it was like a 30-year-old murder. I was curious about a 30-year-old murder. And, you know, this was before... Uh, Social media really got big, and it was, right. it was basically eight years ago. And um, we got really intrigued by it and thought, well, we have to find out more about this. And so we started, you know, we read about the fact that she was killed in a quarry, and then we started... 16 years old. Yeah, she was only 16 years old. and For four uh, days before she was murdered. Then we... Uh, we started searching. We started, you know, from the message board and from Weird New Jersey. I think they had just written their first article. They hadn't written the, the, the second one yet. Um, we started searching for where it actually took place um, because we were really curious because it was such a coincidence that Holly had come up with this, you know, film idea and she had shot it and, you know, she was in it. So we're editing it and then we came across a real life situation that was so similar. So we were immediately intrigued by it. We thought, wow, it's so coincidental. And, um, and we had just met, so we, you know, and then we were working on it so hard and time just kept going by. We were working on the film and, you know, next thing it turned into a relationship. So, so really it's, it, it's unusual because we met because of Jeanette's death. So it's, you know, there's, um, so many synchronicities. There are yeah. so many synchronicities that it's, it's almost like we're haunted by it. And we can't really, you know, every, we, we actually did take a year off because some things had happened and, and they were a little creepy. So we took a, we took a break from it. And, but um, what happened was we then realized that the quarry that she was killed in was across the street from where we lived in Springfield within walking distance. Wow. So then we really got freaked out. Right. So um, from there... The, the message board, uh, the topics message board, we, we put it, we put a post up there saying, Hey, you know, we're, we're very interested in working on any information we can come up with. And, um, John Bancy, who was Jeanette's nephew contacted us and we met with him and he was a great guy. Um, really, I, I have to say this. He was a, just a tremendous person and he was a good friend and he was, you know, a little, Leary of a, at first he's like right, I'm gonna have to vet you I'm like vet away right you know I had worked in New York City as a private investigator and so I'm like I'm you know get, let's do the Pepsi challenge I'm ready I, we we we, we want to work on this right. so we we really did become good friends with him along the way and um, 
that's how Justice for Jeanette started because we okay. he, he said I said what would you you know what would you want to do? He's like, well, let's create a memorial page for Jeanette so that she's remembered for the good person that she was because she was it you know at at 16 years old to be to be working for your for your church and to be very godly and to you know try and bring kids back into into the church mm-hmm. you know that's pretty unusual for there's not a lot of kids that do yeah. that so we were really taken by that so we created justice for Jeanette and um it's been going ever since and um I don't know if we get into this later on but you know unfortunately John passed away and uh, he left us a big box of documents, all of his research, because he was a Marine and a military investigator. And he had been investigating the crime for, you know, since it happened. I guess it was 40-something years at that point. Right. So he left all that information to us. And then we realized that, I mean, his loss, losing him was really we bad. We didn't look at the box for one year. We couldn't. Yeah, after he passed away. it was. So it's like, you know, you, you get into something, you're like, oh, this is interesting. And next thing you know, you're in it, and you're yeah. part of it. And right. he said to me one time, this is the best John story I, I have. He said to me, he's like, what do you care? He's like, it's not your family. He's like, what do, what do, what do you, what do, what do you, why are you bothering? And I said, I said, well, John, I said, if we were in the Old West, and you came riding into town and said the, you know, the uh, the banditos killed your family, and you're looking for a posse to ride after them, and I said, I'd ride with you. And at that point, he and I became, you know, we were instantly friends. That's awesome. I mean, because they're, you know, when, seriously, you know, we were talking about doing good stuff before, when, you know, sometimes, and I'm going to say God charges you with doing good things, and it's your test, and it's it's what you're supposed to do, and, you know, everybody's running around chasing money all the time, and being, you know, greedy and and selfish, and, you know, when's your time to give back? So, we've always looked at this as as a give back, and, and at the same time, you know, it's so unfair that she was she was 16 for four days so and then to be dragged out in the woods and murdered and left for dead and then and then on top of it to be mired with you know she's a drug addict she's this she's that like nobody was was saying anything nice about Jeanette and that's what really torqued John the most so that's kind of the vein that we always okay went in yeah so it started out with a memorial page but you guys have also done a GoFundMe so what's the thought behind the GoFundMe? What what are you guys trying to accomplish? Raise awareness because it's the only it's the only weapon we have. So are you, is your thought to hire a lawyer? Is your thought to well, do some advertising with sure. that money? What oh, that your... all the money goes into advertising okay. on Facebook, and, okay. and like I said, we've put thousands of dollars into 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 the ad system on Facebook to raise awareness, and that's okay. you know we only have like two thousand um, members, and those were hard fought. You know, by putting ads in and converting those people into into members, so it's it's really difficult to if you and then we've gotten a lot of press over it too, and still we don't have a huge following just yet. So our whole goal is to put Jeanette's face everywhere and to let people know that this happened. It's a gigantic cover up. Nobody's doing anything about it. I'm still. I'm, I know we're. I'm probably getting off topic. Here, no, but, you're good. But but you would think that there would be another watchdog agency that would come along and say hey look at all these anomalies yeah and it's really the people that want to get involved with Jeanette they want to help her um even a group of school kids have come forward and 
are saying to the prosecutor's office, they actually want to go to the prosecutor's office and say, like, why aren't you helping this young girl? You know, they want to write letters. They want to get involved. And it's just so beautiful. Uh, So you're building a community. We are. Is what you're doing with that. But it's slow going. Using money to do some Facebook ads, that kind of thing. Right. Um, Have you given any thought to... Hiring an attorney to help you out, or, or are you looking maybe to... I'm my own attorney. I, I okay. sued the Union County Prosecutor's Office okay. under a writ of mandamus to get them to do their job. And um, what I came to find out is you can't tell the prosecutor's office what to do. It's the law yeah. of the land. I mean, they have absolute authority. They can they can prosecute a case. They cannot prosecute a case. It's totally up to them. And, you know, so although I didn't win in court... Um, Six months later, they did release all a, a, a big trove of documents. Who did uh, they release it to? The reporter from the from the Star Ledger, okay. uh, Rebecca Everett. She brought up a really good point in the you know the Star Ledger's the I guess I'm a, I don't know if this is proper the way I'm saying it, but they're the the newspaper of record, and the public has a right to know that's written into sure. I, I don't know if it's the Constitution mm-hmm. or how all law works, but. Yeah. The public has a right to know. So unless it's endangering the case, which it's 50 years old, it's not. And she was able to get them to release. You know, they had to. because So they, they had, released it to that They released it newspaper? to Yes. Okay. And also, I think um, anybody who had an OPA request in, they released it to them also. Okay. We got a copy of it also. And then they said that there was going to be more documents that were, were going to be released, and they haven't released them. Um, they released the crime scene photos. Um, of course, her body is redacted. Um, but it contradicts what the coroner's report said. So the coroner's report, and we had a lot of these documents from John already. We didn't have the crime scene photos, but we had the FBI crime lab report. We had the coroner's report. Um, we have her diary. Um, and it, it didn't match. So there were no stones. There were no crosses. There were no. So I was going to get that. You guys have the diary? We do. Great. Okay, great. All right. So I think we've established you know, why you're doing it and who you are and, and how our listeners can help you. Um, you don't see any advantage if we have like a legal guy out there. We to... are open to everything. Okay. It's all about awareness. Anything that makes it bigger. I mean, this is 50 years and 50, I think 50 is a magic number for people in their brain that anybody who wants to get involved, anybody who wants to help us, anybody who wants to make a big deal about this in any capacity, we are all ears. Okay. Okay. So get to that Justice for Jeanette Facebook page, join, you know, become a member, and you guys, can, they can get in touch with you directly Absolutely. right there. We okay. answer every okay. email we get. Okay. So let's start to talk a little bit about the case itself. When it comes to the actual recovery of that arm and how they got that going on this and, and they find the arm, is your understanding that the woman was walking the dog? No, we actually have the police report. That, okay, so from that day. Yeah, can you fill us in on sure. what happened? Um, her name was Miss Trezone. The dog was a Dalmatian. And the, the report says she came home from food shopping. She let the dog out. And um, she was looking out the window. And the dog was playing with something. And she went out and saw that it was a human arm. Okay. So that's in the report. That's in the police report. Okay. For, for that day. We don't know how how much time transpired from when the dog was let out to when the arm was found, whether it was okay. two minutes, five minutes, 30 minutes. So, um, I mean, the possibilities are that the dog, a Dalmatian, and Dalmatians are kind of skittish, 
Yeah, not, not really air scent dogs. Not they really. They're, they're not really scent. They're not known no. for that. You yeah. know, they're known for being at the firehouse <laughs> and eating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty lax dogs. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I've only I, you know I have a dog and she doesn't not interested in anything that's dead. As a matter of fact, I've never been around a dog that's interested in anything that's dead. No. So so there's a big anomaly here, and and um, so the dog supposedly wandered down. Because 78 and 24 didn't exist. Those highways didn't exist. They were under construction, so it was a big dirt you know, area. There was no cars on it. Wandered down under the bridge and then wound, wa- walked into the quarry. And this is all bog and, and swamp surrounding it and thick and brush and just very difficult, especially in August, to, to get into. So then supposedly went up to the top of the peak. And this is a quarry peak you know, where they, they excavate the rocks. And they build these big mounds, and that's what what it is. So her body was up there. So supposedly the dog went up there, and we have the crime scene sketch, which shows the position of the body. So the body, she's laying on her left shoulder, and her right arm is draped over some branches. This is how she was laying. So the dog got her, supposedly ripped her left arm off, even though the right arm was up, and then went back to the house with it. My dog can't even carry a treat how from the far? car to the house without right. dropping it, you know? So 78 and 24 aren't there, but how far do you think that... Half a mile? Three quarters of a mile? Okay. So it's like a three quarter of a mile trip each way, yeah. each direction. So a mile and a half. And, and then what's what's so odd is so they, after they found the arm, they called the police. And then the police brought in bloodhounds from South Jersey. This is the lore, you know. And the bloodhounds didn't find her. Um, uh, one of the officers found her up on the top of the quarry peak. So the bloodhounds, who are scent dogs, couldn't right. find her. Right. But the, the the police did. So the whole thing of the the arm, the dog. But but now, but then again, I've talked. I think to get too down into the details. Mm-hmm. But do we know where they were running these bloodhounds? Were they running them in the area where yeah. her body was? Yeah. And they didn't find. Be- her. Well, because what they did find was they found. Part of her arm in the parking lot of the apartment complex, and then another part of her arm down, um, uh, in, in closer to the the highway. Okay. So um, there were two parts that they found. Okay. And they so they did find the sec they did find the second part, and they knew that she was around somewhere, but the dogs couldn't f- find her. And you would think after they had the scent that they would be able to find her and. Right. But they didn't. But we've got this <clears throat> this Dalmatian who travels three quarters of a mile for no real good reason. Goes, gets this arm. Or trees and rips the arm home. off that she's laying on. Rips it off the one that's underneath her. Underneath her. Right. Right. And also that's, what, 40 feet in the air? Yeah. To easy. get up there? Easy. Now, a dog can get up there, obviously. Sure. It was a little bit tougher for a human. Very tough for a human. Okay. Because there's a lot of misinformation about this dog. I mean, in a lot of stories that I read, they're... They talk about she was taking the dog for a walk near there, and but you guys have the police report, and you know that's that. That's and we've the case. talked to a lot of people, and and right. um, we've we've talked to one guy who was a painter who was actually at the apartment complex that was painting that, and he found he was the first one to see the arm. We've talked up to a lot of dog trainers and a lot of dog experts, and they're like highly unlikely that the dog would bring the arm back. Okay, so yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and can I just, um, yeah, sure. you would think if, and this is broader, the forensics on this situation, I think, would tell the whole entire story. 
were there were there bite marks on the on her arm? How how what what was the form of the 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 how was the arm taken off? Was it ripped off? Was it cut off? Just the you know like, no, it it's a lig- ligature right. marks would tell the story. So there's enough evidence at the crime scene to set, to tell what happened. It's just and, and but it's all obscured and and like the coroner's report. There's it's there's no detail at all whatsoever. How about the X-rays? You know which they haven't released. Do they X-ray her body? So they would have to know a lot about what happened, but it's it's botched and covered up from the day it happened. They did not want to solve this murder whatsoever. If you go to the original newspaper articles, the original uh-huh. articles, mom, dad, and sister and pastor all said the same thing. Jeanette was killed by a, a pack, a group of satanic witches or satanists or witches or whatever you want to call it, but. She was targeted and she was killed because of her faith. This is all in all the newspaper articles. And that's what happened. It, it's no more complicated than that. Who they are, we don't really know. Right. How it actually happened, um, because of the topology that's there and, and the fact of where Jeanette lived and where her body was found, it's... Okay, so Mountain View Road, which is the road that's right by the quarry, is a steep incline where there's no houses and there's no parking spots. And if you go too far off the shoulder, you go into the, into the dirt. And it's not a popular place to, to go. So there's nobody that can really put together a scenario of how she got there. You know, um, one group says, well, she went out into the woods to go to the bathroom. And there was a, a hobo living out there that killed her. And then, um, yeah. you, you know, there's another group that says, well, she was murdered over here. And they carried her body in there. I'm like... It's very difficult to get yourself from the base of Devil's Teeth to the top, and you have to use all fours, and you're sliding down the rocks right. or sliding the whole entire time. Right. And then when you get to the top, it's basically a thicket of trees and branches and briars that it's... And we've gone there in the winter. Like, I would never go there in the summertime. There's no way. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's, you know... And, right. and I'm an outdoor kind of person, but... Right. Between the snakes and the bugs. Yeah, and... We've, we've been there and we've climbed the hill and it's very difficult. You have to yeah. go on your hands and knees and it's a <sighs> big struggle. Yeah. Uh, you had to use like a stick, a walking stick to get up the side. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Very difficult. Okay, so you're probably going to kill me, but we're going we're gonna to sure. stay linear. Okay. So the dog comes back with her arm uh-huh. um, and then, like you were saying... The, the search begins for her body, right? we got to find the rest of this body. They bring these dogs in from South Jersey. Mm-hmm. The dogs do not find her, but the police do. Yes. Do you think they they kind of knew where to look? Yeah. Okay. I did. All right. So you think they brought the dogs in, they were searching off in any, another area, but the cops kind of knew where to look. I, I think her arm was taken off of her body, and it was placed in the parking lot for the dog to find. Right. Um. I mean, it's, you know, when coincidence, it's, it, it, it benefits only, the coincidences only benefit the murderer. They never benefit Jeanette in any way. So all the things that happen, people are like, it's a coincidence. I'm like, but, but it doesn't benefit Jeanette in any way. It always, but because if she was left there for six weeks, there would be very little forensic evidence back then. Back then they didn't have DNA, but they had fibers and they had sure. fingerprints, sure. you know, and uh, so, um, and the odd thing is. So you think the odd thing about it was they, they knew where to look. Like literally, how, how how much time passed from this arm to full body found? Couple uh, hours. So in a couple hours, they find. By that night, they had found her body, and they had. And they find it forty 
feet right. up in the air right. in this odd place. Right. Okay. And like I said, the coroner's report said that there were stones around her head, like a halo. Right. And then there's other reports where there were stick. There were, st- uh, you know, yeah. We'll get to, we'll get yeah, to that okay. report. Um, now you had something you were talking to me about. You you have an interesting piece of information on audio, um, and I think it's an official who told you maybe some contradicting information about where originally she was. Yes. Can you get into that a little bit without um, naming names? Sure. Uh, I don't know how serious he was about it, okay. um, but he's. Well, I can say he's a really good guy, and he really wants the right thing to happen. And he's he's. But you know, he mentioned that they were. We don't really know where the crime scene was. We really right. don't. Like they say, it's here, but we don't have any. There's. If you look at the crime scene photos, it's very difficult to figure out where that actually is. So, is it on the top of that peak? Could be. Was it across the street in the golf course? Could be. We don't know. Um, was her body moved? It's the the odd thing is why why did the coroner's report who in the coroner was there say that there was a halo of stones around her head and 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 you you get to the crime scene photos and there's no there's no stones. So he indicated to you that he thinks that the body may have been moved, perhaps, or may have heard that. Per, yes. Okay. Okay. That's good enough. Um, so let's get to the crime scene itself, the photos and all the other good stuff and, and what actually um, was the original story and then what came out at the end. Um, I think originally one of the people who was there who was describing the scene described it as satanic in nature or something, well, they, some ritualistic. They brought a witch there to say whether or not it was satanic or not so they must have taken it pretty seriously yeah but what happened was there was one person who said it was a ritual scene right or one of one official that was there at the crime scene and then i think another one said nah no it's not really what that was they've they've always contradicting information there there is there definitely is okay and like you said they've got this contradicting information but yet they bring this witch in (laughs) to take a look at so, and it's in multiple newspaper articles. It's, yes. it's not we're not making it up. I mean, it's, and it doesn't name the witch, but I think it kind of does. Okay, it kind of does. But do you know who it was? Lilith Sinclair from the Church of Satan. Okay, who and was up? Who was later on gets married to Michael Aquino, yes. and they start the Temple of Set. Correct. Okay, and they were just featured in Time Magazine. You know, a couple of months earlier in June, um, Satan returns, and there's a full, full picture of her. Performing a ritual, it says Lilith Sinclair, um, you know, and they're performing the what was it, the ritual of care or something. I, I saw so. one of your your articles that you had posted in that excellent video, and I think it it has a picture of her and talking about it. So that may have been what you're talking about, right? I think it's and, in that video. And if she didn't want to be associated with it, her picture was certainly published enough times in the newspaper. Right. You know, with Jeanette De Palma's fate, you know, uh, situation, and then it would be Lilith Sinclair. Lilith Sinclair says this. Lilith Sinclair says that. I mean, she says in one article, "I have fifty new young members in my cult." It's in the paper. It's it's that's what she okay. says. So I mean, who? Here's what I couldn't establish when I looked looked into her and looked into Michael Aquino. I couldn't establish any time when they lived here. Oh yeah, did they live here? Spotswood, New Jersey. Okay, she, okay. She's originally from Philadelphia, I believe. Oh. And then she set up in New Jersey. And so am I. <laughs> That's too funny. I was specifically interested in where she lived because there was no record of that. Spotswood. But you're saying she lived right in Spotswood, That's what New it Jersey. says in Time Magazine. Was she with Michael Aquino then? I, he was 
also one of the founders with Anton okay. LaVey, but I think he was in California. They weren't married yet, so okay. she was still doing her own thing. But from the internal documents I've read from them, from the Church of Satan, she was labeled the um, supernatural superstar of the East Coast. That was her title. And wow. her job was to get publicity because they had just released the Satanic Bible and the Satanic Rituals in 1972, and they were selling that book. And I, I know she had an organization of young people in, in New Jersey that were selling the book because I've talked to people who said, oh, yeah, the girls in black selling the book. So there, there was a group of kids out there selling the book. That's what they were doing. Wow. Okay. So she, whether she was involved in this, I can't say for sure. I don't know. But they sure did seize the opportunity to jump on the publicity of it. Right. You know, and she's... They knew who right to go to they, to, they, to check out the scene and tell them whether it was or wasn't. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, if they didn't want sensationalism, it, I mean, it just seems like a gigantic advertisement for them. There's, so the lore is that this group called the witches wanted a child sacrifice for Halloween. That was, that's the lore. That's come straight out of Weird New Jersey's articles. And that's exactly what happened. And then there was an article written by the AP that says, um, Jersey gives the devil his due. And there's a picture of Lilith. And then there's a caption about Michael Newell and how he died. And then right underneath that is a caption of a paragraph about Jeanette and how she died. And if you read the whole article, it's like an advertisement for the Church of Satan. So who's Michael Newell, you say? That's what I was wondering as well. In June of 1971, Michael Newell asked his two friends to drive him to a pond in the deserted hills of Manitinko. He then asked him to bound his hands and feet with adhesive tape. After giving a brief service to the devil, Michael Newell asked his two friends to push him into the pond. They did, and his body was discovered three days later. It would seem that Newell had concluded that any Satan worshiper who was murdered by his friends would be reborn as a captain to rule over 40 legions of demons. Chief of Police Charles Pangburn had confiscated literature from Michael Newell's room which dealt with information regarding a satanic sect. Pagburn refused to divulge its contents. Retired police officers stated that a satanic cult posed under the name of a different organization was directly responsible for the victim's death and the overall influence of his two friends. Research through documented publications revealed that a woman named Lil Sinclair was interrogated by investigators in the summer of 1971 after the black magic sacrifice of the victims. She was a high priestess of the Church of Satan, a cult organized in California in the late 1960s. Circumstantial evidence suggests that Lilith Sinclair was definitely involved. Later on, Lilith marries Michael Aquino, and they become the satanic power couple with the Church of Satan. Later on, they break off and they start their own temple of Set. The Aquinos are a rabbit hole. Michael Aquino is a lieutenant colonel in the army, and the stories about the Aquinos are just unbelievable. It's quite a rabbit hole. I would suggest you guys check it out. So it's like who in, in their right mind? How would who would write this with these poor two these these poor dead teenagers? You know, it's, it's only a month. It's not even a month later. So it's it was it's chilling that yeah. you know I I don't know I guess maybe they were just seizing the opportunity. But yeah. Yeah. so getting back to the crime scene, sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the purse, and maybe you could take us through the ambiguity with that. Maybe somebody had said that there was a purse there, then there wasn't. Sure. And could you explain that and why you feel that that's important? Um, well, 
Okay, so if she was just up there and her purse was intact and all her belongings were in her purse and she was just laying there dead, then the possibility of it being a suicide or just a peculiar death, maybe she was on drugs and she wandered. I mean, but the fact that her purse was emptied and dumped there means that she wasn't up there alone, you know? Um, she wouldn't dump her own purse. She couldn't. She, You know, right. Would she dump her own purse and then kill herself? Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it so... It makes a lot of sense. Right. And then she, her purse is missing, you know, um, even though, it, right, in the book it says that that uh, um, Ed Kish handled the purse. Uh, and uh, so where is it? So so if, if, if you really think about it, her clothes are missing. The purse is missing. So anything that would have had any type of evidence on it is missing, which is really odd. So was the purse there? Perhaps. Was it gone? Perhaps. Her cross is missing also. You know, her gold cross that she was always wearing. And I just talked right, to somebody took, who... Took that as a souvenir. A little foreshadowing right there for our summary. Could be. Or she lost it on the way, you know, being dragged up there. You know, a lot of people are like, why don't you get some metal detectors and go see if you can find it? I thought, wow, how tremendous would that be if we came across, found found the cross laying in the... In, I mean, it could actually answer a lot of questions. Yeah. So initially when I heard that, I thought, that man, that's kind of a hokey idea. But the more I think about it, if there was a team of people out there looking for it, and they found it. It would really, it could shine some light on it, you know. So, if and, but, but got the listeners of, out there with metal detectors, maybe they could help just you guys out. If you're listening to this, don't go there and wander. Yeah, you in can't there. just get in. It's, it's private property. It's owned by the government. You will get in trouble. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get in touch with Ed and, and you know, see if maybe your metal detector can help them out, that'd be great, <laughs> right? Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Um. So. Um, the contents of the purse are really interesting because there's a vial with an unknown substance in it. We don't know what that is. There's her fingernail scrape. Well, I guess that's not in the purse, but her, you know, her, they have her fingernail scraping, so they, they have that. That that survived. Um, inhaler. The inhaler. Okay. The comb. So, are there potential? D- is there potential DNA on that stuff? Could be. Sure. I, you know, but nobody's pushing. I mean, we've offered to pay for it. Yeah, that's kind of the point of what you guys are trying to do. You're trying to get them to admit they have this stuff. Well, we got them to admit or that they have. Or don't have they? They have said this that stuff. The, you know initially they said it was all lost in Hurricane Floyd, which is not true. From the when when like we sued them, although we didn't win, they did release the documents. We we brought it to light that we put pressure on them on the prosecutor's office. They released the documents, and within within their own documents, it says the Jeanette's evidence wasn't destroyed. It it was inspected and repacked. And put back on the shelf because the water didn't damage it. Everything except her clothing. Right. And there's records that the FBI says that it was Q1 through Q4, you know, underwear, bra, shirt, and jeans. So they should have it. They they don't have a record of not having it. Hmm. So it's missing. So And there's never been any explanation of what's happened to it. And along that's really with our any, big beef. Along with anything that has to do with the purse, which has the potential to be... Something that she could have been strangled with. Could be. Okay. Have they ever established a cause of death? No. No idea. Not, 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 no idea at all. They can't even establish that it was a, a, an overdose, which is the official story they want everybody to believe. It definitely wasn't an overdose. They, they did a toxicology on her and okay. she didn't have any drugs in her system. Did, and she wasn't there really. Was lead in her yeah, system. Yeah. What was that all about? That come. Yeah. We believe it comes from the ground. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's naturally occurring. Yeah, so, and it so probably got absorbed into her tissues right. as she was laying there for exactly all that time. Okay. 
So from what we've we've talked to her friends, um, her cousins, and Jeanette wasn't really a big partier. I mean, maybe she tried some marijuana. Um, Gail Donahue was the last person that talked to her. Um, she said their big thing was they would take a little bit of liquor out of each bottle in their in the in their parents in her parents uh not Jeanette, just but, like we all did yeah like we all did like we, right. they were very innocent kids and, and like i said we have her diary and we've read her diary she is a really goofy teenager from just from reading her diary she, she's like you know it's she doesn't even have the terminology down for things like that's right. how goofy right. she was and she was a very shy person yeah definitely shy okay um i think because maybe her older sister was really wild really wild that's usually the way it works out. It's yeah. the way it is with my kids. I got one knucklehead and one that uh, <laughs> does great. So, yeah, it's usually what happens. You get the polar opposites. The polar opposites. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe somebody local who has some more stuff that they could tell Ed, um, you know, some more hints, some more information. Um, you'd certainly keep that anonymous. Sure. Right? And the best way to get in touch with you is? Uh, justice, justice for Jeanette at gmail.com. Okay. Um, or go to go to the Facebook page, Facebook join, become messages. a member. Yeah. yeah, I don't even think you have to be a member. You can just messenger, messenger, messenger us, and we get it. There's so many unsolved murders, and they're using genealogy testing. Yeah, let's touch on the familial DNA and why that's important. Um, you know, like you're saying, we if the, there is this this clothing, and you know this person, whatever, there's the stuff that we can get DNA from. We're in a different era now with this familial DNA and with everybody who, you know, participates in 23andMe and all that other good stuff. There's all this information out there where if we were able to get some DNA off of that material, it would really be helpful. And they might be able to find a relative of somebody that could have possibly done it or maybe them themselves. So the FBI crime lab report says there is potential blood and semen stains on her clothing. That's huge. That's huge. Right. Just the fact, look, so let's say even if they can't identify whose it is, but to find blood and semen on her clothing, that means that something happened. That it wasn't, you know, because right. there's no way that it could be there. So that in itself is amazing. It, 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 but, but of course, the clothing's missing. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, so, I mean, how much more of a cover-up can there possibly be? Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's like one thing that I can't believe that. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what agency would step in. But from their own documents, it, for the, 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 the crime lab report says that there is, that their, their inventory report says it's missing, and nobody cares. Just release the rest of the documents. Release the x-rays. Bring in another, you know, like the VDOC Society. Let them come in, and, and we're, we've been talking to them. And we're very actively now trying to push for them to come in, and they bring in their own people. They do... They pay for all the DNA testing and all that sort of stuff. So we're, we're, I, I have to say we are work. It, this investigation isn't stalled. It's very active. And we've been pushing people and contacting people and providing our research to um, officials in Springfield and at the Union County Prosecutor's Office. And, and what's weird about it is um, we all know each other. And some of the people, you know, because... When you live in a place, you know everybody that's around, and they know of you. So it's true. I think there's a lot of people involved in this that want this to be solved. 
Well, hey, I wanted to thank you guys sure. uh, for being on the show today. I really thank appreciate you. it. Um, is there anything else you guys can think of that we didn't cover? It's we, time to tell the truth. <laughs> it is. It's what we yeah. always say. It's, yeah, it's 50 years. You know, it's, it's time to... It's Jeanette's turn. And the absolutely. answer is right in front of the science. Test the DNA. That's it, man. Yeah. That's all you guys are asking. Just just do that. And you'll be happy, right? I mean, that's it. Yes. Everything else will come from maybe somebody's conscience finally getting the best of them. 50 years ago... They pretty much got away with it. Okay, so uh, that was the interview with Ed and Holly. I appreciate those guys sitting down with me. Interesting interview. Let's get into our thoughts on this. And before we do that, let's talk a little bit about some stuff that went on when we were in the process of... Actually, post-interview was when this all happened. And I want to speak real briefly about it. I don't want to get hung up on it. But, you know, we're always working two or three shows out. So I was in contact with another uh, filmmaker uh, about an interview, uh, and I had mentioned the Daily Beast article um, because that's also a cold case that this filmmaker is involved in. And we were talking about it, and he happened to mention it to one of the authors of the book, Death on the Devil's Teeth. And I got an email back from the filmmaker warning me not to interview Ed and Holly. And he happened to mention to the author that, you know, he was talking to me and, um, you know, a couple things here. Number one, I don't like getting contacted indirectly and I don't like getting contacted through intermediaries. And I also don't like people trying to tell me what I can and can't do. Um, so we'll talk real briefly about this. I decided to contact that author directly. Uh, we spoke back and forth in some emails he made some allegations against Ed and Holly, and I gave him plenty of opportunities to prove his allegations in the hope that, you know, if what he showed me was correct, I would, you know, not air the interview. I can tell you uh, through four rounds of going back and forth, that did not happen. He didn't give me one single shred of evidence to prove anything he was saying, and I was kind of like shocked by it all. Um, and then it just, like it always does, just degenerated down into crazy name calling on his part. And, you know, the bottom line is I will interview anybody I want for my show. And everybody who deserves to be heard will be heard. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, just to clarify, we're talking about Jesse Pollock. We're not talking about Mark. We were in comms with Jesse. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, let's say this, too. We're both big fans of We're New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, for, for me, uh, that's but, an understatement. Yeah, and I'm fans of it for the little offside road places that they've turned me on to over the time that, you know, I used to read it when I was, you know, young and a teenager. And so, and I also don't think that we bump heads with those guys. It's not really what we're doing. We're doing something completely different. So we're not in competition with them at all, I don't think. You know, so from that perspective, it's time yeah, to just it's move on. It was a very strange dynamic. Very, know, between, very strange. Um, between these two parties, and it seemed almost one-sided. I mean, you did your due diligence. Yeah. And you got I, I, back to fact, and said, yo, you took what Jesse said, since he didn't provide proof, you went straight to the source, and you asked Ed directly, and he was able to disprove a lot of the things that was being alleged. He addressed every question I asked him, and I felt embarrassed doing it. I've never gone back to a guest and asked them questions post-interview yeah. for them to legitimize themselves even more. Bottom line is that particular individual wants to control the narrative on this, it seems. And everybody has a right to be heard. And, you know, Ed and Holly are doing a, 
you know, fundraiser to raise awareness and they are actively investigating the case and they live in New Jersey uh, and this individual doesn't. And they are moving the case forward. And, you know, he's talking about a fourth edition of a book. So one of the things he accused Ed of was profiting off of the death of a teenager. But in the same breath, it was amazing. He said to me, just wait for my fourth edition of the book and I'll have this extra piece of information. So if anybody's profiting from it, it's it's that individual and not. Yeah, it almost seems like projection. But uh, I mean, not for nothing. Just to give credit where it's due, Jesse was directly involved in filing the Oprah request back in 2019 and the FOIA information. He got a lot of the files released that were supposedly gone. I do want to give credit there, but it's bizarre to me that we never took credit away from ownership. Yeah, we we never took credit away from him. As a matter of fact, when I was before my interview with Ed, I actually was in contact with him directly asking him a couple questions about pieces of evidence. I've never questioned that he's a expert on it. And actually in the interview with Ed and Holly, a part that's cut out, they give total credit to him for the work he did. So exactly. I mean, they just, they credited him, but let's be real clear here about something. Okay. All this satanic stuff and all this ritual stuff comes from, you know, Jeanette's family and pastor, right? Parents and pastor. Let's be specific. And then also initially came from, well, initially, then, it was thought that it was, you know, one of the CSIs thought that they noticed some witchcraft, but definitely with Jeanette's family, as well as the pasture, that sort of got the whole satanic panic thing rolling with that case. But at the same time, I think what you're about to say is we're New Jersey. As much as I love those guys, they actually kind of perpetuated at the same time. Well, their first couple articles definitely mentioned that, right? Because they had received some letters and, you know, we all know how letters are. Letters are sources of information that people either are related past experiences or just making stuff up and maybe embellishing a little bit. But yes, the whole angle of Satanism and Satanic worship being involved with Jeanette's passing was originally, you know, drummed up a little bit by Weird New Jersey as well. You know, then they want to change the narrative. Uh, how many years later? That's fine, but you can't expect people to not still wonder about it. 49 years later. Yeah. <laughs> you can't expect people to still not wonder about it, you know? So nobody's going to tell me what I can and can't say on my show. Between you and me, I'm not exactly ruling out that satanic cold activity and ritualism well, was not involved. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the satanic angle to it. We're going to talk about uh, their uh, number one suspect, who is Otto Neil Nielsen. And Mm -hmm. then I think you have a really good idea. So let's go ahead and do that. So, you know, I I looked into the background of, you know, the whole, it's weird, right? Like, there's a lot of this up in that neck of the woods, like the satanic thing, right? It's a satanic ritual. Where does it come from? So I did a little bit of research and, you know, like everybody knows about Clinton Road and knows how, you know, Clinton Road is haunted, you know, and there's a bunch of people that go up there and take rides. And there was a castle there built by Richard James Cross, and it's called Cross Castle. And that castle was built back in like the early 1900s. So when it was built, it was just amazing. Actually, 12 people were hired around the clock, 365 days a year to just chop wood to keep this thing warm. It was just massive, right? And he was a railroad baron, but he was also a pagan. And he was investigated at one time for uh, the disappearance of a young girl. And there was rumors swirling around that he was involved in a springtime sacrifice where a woman was sacrificed. And it was a pagan slash satanic ritual type thing. So Mm -hmm. 
that's where some of that lure comes from Clinton Road. There's a bunch of other stuff that's involved with Clinton Road, and this isn't a Clinton Road show. That's kind of gives you the background of how long this perpetuating of Satanism and all that other good stuff has gone on. And we always hear about the Satanic Panic. You know, the Satanic Panic did exist in some respect, but also there was a lot of Satanic activity going on. And I think Geraldo Rivera kind of, that, that special that he did on TV was horrendous and didn't do... Yeah, I mean, he just cut people off at the pass. He had Ozzy on there, and he was like, he wouldn't even let Ozzy speak. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple um, detectives who were interviewed on there and were trying to get their words out, and Geraldo cut them off because there was like 75 commercials. And he a, just went over the top. You know, it was it, blaming, was it was a forced narrative. Yeah, blaming heavy metal, doing all that. And also Tipper Gore was involved with a lot of this too, politically. She was all on, you know, the heavy metal and the satanic rock and roll and all that other good stuff. So, you know, from that aspect, yeah, there was a panic. But the satanic Bible came out in 1969. And it yeah. did generate a lot of interest, you know, around atheists who were looking for something different to do besides what their parents did, right? And here comes this book out. Uh, it was written by... Anton LaVey, you know, who's basically Howard Levy from Chicago, who decides that he's going to become the, you know, the leader of the Church of Satan. And he writes this satanic Bible. It's heavily plagiarized from other writings. And um, it gets big in the early 70s. And there were a lot of women around North Jersey running around with like witches attire on, right? So dark black attire selling this satanic Bible. And, yeah. you know, it not it a myth actually interest. happened. Yes. Right. None of this is, I mean, you can go to any chat board you want and you'll see people mentioning these people and, and how they were selling the satanic Bible. Um, and it was a big thing in the early seventies and it was basically atheists looking for, you know, a different way maybe. Um, but I think part of the problem with this whole satanic panic thing, the hard part is sorting out what's real and what's not. So, you know, blaming heavy metal rock and roll was a little bit over the top. Geraldo's special was a little bit over the top, but this stuff existed. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time with it because they think of it as a cult, O-C-C-U-L-T, all right? And basically what it was was a cult, okay? And it was a cult that was based on a lot of drugs, a lot of free sex, and, you know, maybe these people that were involved in the cult were asked to just do some shady things when they weren't having the uh, drugs and the free sex. So it's, it's you could see where in bedroom communities for Manhattan, this would be a very appealing religion, right? Yeah. What are your choices? You go to, to church with mom and dad on Sunday, or, you know, you can be involved in involved in satanism and you you know do a bunch of drugs on the weekend and screw your brains out for free yeah. right i so, mean this means of rebellion is like a countercultural movement yeah and it, it's not anything about you know summoning demons and they come up out of the ground you know and i think that's where people get caught up with this stuff the ridiculousness of that gets yeah. added in and then it's just like oh that was just a, a panic no there were literally people running around up there. I mean, Lilith Sinclair was, a, you know, in Spotswood, New Jersey, and she had the Lilith Grotto in Manhattan, which is still there to this day. You know, it was an organized religion up there. Now, what did they do? What are they guilty of? We don't know. We can talk a little bit about Michael Noel, which we told the story there. I did find some more records, and Lilith Sinclair was interrogated when, you know, Michael Noel died. So yeah. there was some kind of connection there. And the chief found some kind of literature, you know, in Michael Noel's house and also the other two guys that were involved that led back to Lilith. So she was legitimately questioned in that. I believe that she was the witch that was at the crime scene for the Palmer. 
Well, she definitely could have been, and that's the point, right? And, you know, too, when we were investigating all this good stuff and we were talking about it, also there's parts of the interview that are cut out where, where Ed uh, discussed Patty List a little bit, and that's a real touchy subject up there. The List murders are a touchy subject, and we're in no way saying that John List was anything other than a complete and utter monster. But, you know, the rumor is that Patty List was having sex with a lot of older men, um, and she was practicing witchcraft. And I corresponded with Joe Sharkey, who wrote a book about the List murders, and I asked him about Patty, and he said, yeah, you know, she was practicing witchcraft, it's true. And then I, you know, he volunteered this. Uh, we got a pretty good conversation, and I'm hoping to get him on the show one day, but he uh, volunteered that, you know, he believes from his interviews that when the list house was burned down, there were absolutely teenagers who thought they were practicing satanic rituals who actually burned that house down. So that was really interesting to hear from Joe Sharkey because yes. he's a heck of a true crime writer and he's got some really good books out. So there was something to this. And what I was getting ready to say about Michael Noel was that the two guys that were involved, you know, in actually throwing him into the pond uh, down there in Manitinko. One of them uh, actually committed suicide later on, and the other one I think is in a mental hospital to this day. So uh, you know what? I never knew what happened. I actually looked to see what happened with those guys and never found anything. That's yeah. And, and why we were, why I was digging through this yesterday, man? Um, there, there's a lot of stuff going on down in Cumberland County. We have to look into it. Um, yeah, we really. I do. mean, yeah, I, I feel you on Cumberland, but North Jersey itself is completely saturated in real documented More. occult cases. Yeah, allure I mean, and, and documented cases. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, Tommy Animal Sullivan. sacrifices, exactly. Yeah. Like one of the, the detectives who's interviewed on Araldo's um, ridiculous show, uh, I forget his last name, his name was Paul, and he's involved with uh, Tommy Sullivan's case. And he's trying to get something out, and Geraldo cuts him off. We're hoping to get him on the show, too. I did track him down. So I'm hoping to get him on. But uh, he he investigated the Tommy Sullivan case. And Tommy Sullivan was a kid that, uh, by all accounts, on Thanksgiving and in 1987 was just a hardworking wrestling kid who, you know, sacrificed a lot to make weight, that kind of stuff. He got really good grades. He was just a real good kid. Uh, and by January 8th of the following year, he had, like, gouged his mother's eyes out and killed her and tried to set his house on fire and burn his entire house down. And the way he did it, after he killed his mother, he kind of jumped her in the basement. And uh, the way he tried to burn the house down, he took all his little satanic uh, books that he was reading at the time, and he put them uh, in some kind of a formation. They haven't, you know, indicated what that was. And he put lighter fluid all over him and tried to burn the house down. Uh, he then left the house. He took his father's truck and he drove it across the street. And I don't know if he was drugged or on drugs or whatever, but he wound up hitting a tree and he got loose and went into the neighbor's backyard. So in the meantime, that neighbor hears his father screaming and yelling. He goes running across to help him and they discover the father standing over the body of the mother. Her eyes are gouged out and she's murdered. And then, you know, the, also uh, Tommy's younger brother was there as well. They can't, so they can't find Tommy. And then the next day, that same neighbor who was helping him was in his kitchen looking out his back window, and he looked at his woodpile, and he saw a uh, body up against the woodpile, and it was Tommy Sullivan. Uh, so Tommy Sullivan had actually took both his wrists, and he tried to slit them. And the way he did it was, you know, not across the wrist, but he, he did it with the bones. And he actually cut all the way down to the bone. On, on one wrist, and then he actually almost decapitated himself 
like literally cut all the way down to the spine to finally kill himself with his good arm, with his good hand. That's how crazed he was when he killed himself. I mean, that's, so, yeah, that sounds way worse than just a standard psychotic break. No, I mean, Tommy, the, like Tommy's possessed. The Tommy Sullivan case has some paranormal aspects to it. So I would suggest anybody take a look at that because there's a weird smear up at the top of the wall, almost like he was, you know, may have been holding his mother's body all the way up at the top of the wall. Um, so there's that going on. And then also, you know, how do you cut your own throat all the way down to the spine? So yeah, there's definitely some some strange strange circumstances involved in the Tommy Sullivan case, and when you talk to people who talk satanic panic, they they throw that case in there too. Oh well, that was all sensationalized and all that other good stuff. How is cutting your throat down to the spine sensationalized? <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, so I mean, we're not trying to say that this was definitely a, a satanic ritual. What happened to Jeanette? We're just saying that the people who run around and say that uh, there's a satanic panic or maybe being a little bit disingenuous. The stuff really existed. It went on. And actually, it still goes on to this day. I sent you one yesterday, yeah. a news story. What's it, 2019, where a bunch of workers down in Cumberland County, one worker killed the other worker, and he had a satanic Bible on him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so this stuff still goes on to this day. And it's interesting down in Cumberland County. If anybody has any stories from Cumberland County, we'd love to hear them. But, uh, definitely uh, write in. Uh, yeah, give us a call, email us. Yeah, Cumberland County. You know, the the big town there is Salem, so it's kind of a witchy name to begin with. But yep. there, there's definitely smoke and fire when it comes to the satanic thing. Um, now, did it involve Jeanette? I don't know. You know, I, I mean, that's what Ed and Holly believe. I I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. But it's at least worth considering and listening to. And what are your thoughts on it? I think it's way too early to discount that it was not satanic related. It could absolutely. I was just looking up this Greg Sanders. Do you know about that kid? No. Yeah. So what no, he did was uh, he basically just flipped out, killed both of his parents with an axe, and then jumped off a water tower. Wow. I get those two cases mixed up all the time. Gotcha. But anyway, yeah, my thoughts are that the occult was definitely involved one way or another because the girl was so religious and outright that it seems like if there were peers that she had that was practicing any sort of black magic that she would have possibly addressed it. Yeah, she would have been in her ear about it. Yeah, which could and have that's, possibly that, made her a target. Yeah, and that's reflected in her diary too, I believe. That's that's actually the point that Ed and Holly are trying to make. So, yeah, I, you can't discount it, right? So... All we've got is this book, and we've got newspaper articles. So and they're saying that there's no satanic angle involved with it, right? So yeah, and our, the basis for them saying that it's not, it's yeah, not a, what is what is that based on? It's based on the crime scene photos that were released because it had been rumored for a long time that there was sticks laid around her in these various symbols. That's there, pretty detailed stuff, and it wasn't depicted in the crime scene photos whatsoever. But who's to say, you know? I mean, the body's redacted from the photos. It's hard to tell what's around. I can see branches around. I can't mm -hmm. see any symbols, but they're right. not the greatest photos. They're black and white. If there is a halo of rocks, um, they wouldn't show up anyway. It's, it's literally two different photos of the same angle. So you're not seeing much difference between each photo. Um, if you're looking at one, it's the first is as good as the next. It's almost the same picture. Yeah. I know the problem that you have with the book is that it doesn't really come to a conclusion, and, and that's fine. And I, I, I know that other people here, because we bought three copies of this book, had problems the same way. So maybe yeah. what they're trying to say is that the only thing that's not satanic is the scene itself. 
Well, and that's the thing, too, is that the book is still selling the occult activity angle. It's not until last year when the files were finally released with the photos that Weird New Jersey published that they no longer are buying into the occult angle because of the photos. So the book still speculates that occult activity was involved. But you later have both authors going on the record saying, no, and retracting it that statement. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you when think... I think it's I think it's way too early to just discount right. it altogether. The, just the area itself. Like like I said, that area is just saturated in cult activity between the Church of Satan and Temple of Set. And it has a, a history of it, not just in that time frame, but over a century's worth of occult activity on top of right. that cult activity. I think it's way too early just to discount it. And yeah. from the photos that I saw, it looks like maybe there could have been symbols there. You really can't tell. It's not hard to look them up if our audience wants to take their own look. You can easily find that. Right. Uh, just want to go ahead and get the last Weird New Jersey, the last one that came out. They're right there in the magazine. Like I said, the yeah, body's take a look for yourself. Come up with your own conclusion. Yeah, so when I was going back and forth with Jesse, he had said that um, their number one suspect was, at this point, Otto Neil Nelson. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, right? So we know that Nielsen was prosecuted uh, in the Joan Kramer case. He was acquitted, right? You know a little bit about his history, a little bit more than I do. He wasn't really, he I didn't mean, really have a criminal history, did he? Not, not really. The reason he was arrested in connection to Joan Kramer's murder is because a witness saw a struggle with a girl and a car and based on her description of that man, which it may not even have been Joan Kramer, on her description of the man in that struggle, a sketch was composited, and that sketch closely resembled Neil Nielsen. Yeah, I saw those side-by-sides. It really does. Yeah, it does really, really look like him a lot. It so does, they, he, and he, and he kind of had a reputation already as kind of a hard-ass, but, I mean, not like a, a killer. Yeah, he kind of had like a Leroy Brown air about him. I mean, he was just a big guy, and uh, he did. He had, <laughs> yeah, he had lots of spats with his neighbors. I mean, I know tons okay. of guys like that. You know, I mean, there's just just hey, you know one right here doesn't mean yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, you know, sometimes neighbors fight over dumb shit. Yeah, you know, I mean, they do. Uh, you know, like borders, and you know, oh, your stuff's on my side, and why are you throwing branches over my yard? Yeah, it's yeah. usually petty right. shit. You know, right, but. Right. Why is but your anyway, dog barking all the time? Right. Yeah, you got this guy. He's he's a it's big guy. Not a guy. hardened criminal. He's got a uh, he's got kind of a bad rep, yeah. and uh, you know he does very much resemble the sketch. So right. based on that, they decided, oh, this guy must have killed Jim Kramer. So they're which they're is, basing it off the sketch, right? Yeah, which exactly. Is, which is based off the recollection recollections of a fifty year old woman who's not even sure she identified Jim Kramer. Yeah, and I believe this. You know, she witnessed this at night to begin with. You know, and who's oh, wow. to say she didn't already know who Neil Nielsen was? And I'm not saying that was the case, but it's just uh, it's just pretty strange. And, and the guy looks you're generic saying, as hell. You know what I mean? He just looks like yeah, a generic ass guy. It's nothing, no scars or very identifiable marks. You know, it's a general sketch for a guy. Of course, it looked exactly like Neil Nielsen and he's got bad rep. So he took the rap for it. Okay. Um, now, yeah. did he have some he... issues? Yeah, he he did. He was schizophrenic. I okay. mean, he uh, he never admitted guilt to this. He maintained his innocence for years, and he was basically institutionalized. Okay. And he eventually, you know, it, it led to his death because he did commit suicide. But that was years after the fact and after being institutionalized for almost two decades. Yeah, and we're trying to reach out to his remaining sons 
to see if we can't, you know, who knows, maybe they'd be open to come on and talk about them. But yeah. yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's who they're putting forth as the number one suspect. Yeah. Based off of the composite drawing done exactly, by a 50 year old woman exactly. at night who also could have been, you know, uh, a person with an ax to grind perhaps. And again, you know, there's is no this, evidence to that, but she could have been, especially if this guy isn't, you know, yeah. the nicest guy in the world. And then all the, every, he's judged as being not the nicest guy in the world based off the fact that he's also schizophrenic and has mental issues to begin with. Yeah. So okay. they needed someone to take the fall and that's who they ended up with. Now, there's a new version coming out. Maybe there'll be a new number one suspect. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> th- it wasn't their conclusion because they didn't have a conclusion. They just had a right. few suspects and he happened to be the prime one, in my opinion. Well, in their, his email to me, he says that, you know, they're, they're, down the Otto Neil Nielsen path. I have the email. So, yeah. You know, um, so that's what he's did, saying. They did mention a uh, homeless caddy that was living up there in the quarry where she was found, but his testimony and alibi got him checked off her suspects list with the police anyway. We his talking about Carl Spackler? Yeah, yeah, not Carl. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, his name was uh, Red Kyer. So he got let off. They mentioned him in the book. They did speculate that maybe it's a little bit premature. Okay. And the, their other suspects were basically friends. Well, wait a minute. Was... You know what? Hold on a second. That's weird, right? Like, why is it this random caddy? You know, because I think it, Ed says something about maybe it was done in the golf course. That's weird, right? Because yeah. you got Ed saying maybe she was murdered in the golf course. And then you got these guys talking about this homeless caddy named Red. That's yeah, kind of so a weird. It is. I, I thought it was weird. And if I was a cop, I don't think I'd just discount it right away. You know, I mean, maybe he had a super solid alibi, but I know based on his testimony, he got checked off the list. Well, maybe it lends credence to them moving a body. Maybe it lends credence to what Ed's saying about. I don't think she was killed on Devil's Teeth. I, I feel like she was moved there. And I think a lot of people believe that she was possibly killed at the golf course, which I wouldn't doubt. I wouldn't doubt that at all. But the, the right. deal with Red is he's just, he's a caddy. He's homeless. And he works at that golf course. The golf course is not far from uh, Hudai Quarry. So that's where Jeanette yes, was found. across the street. Right. And basically where he had been living. I don't know why it would take between August and October to find that body. Especially, like, how close it was to that golf course. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I feel like somebody would smell that body. Yeah, gotcha. And, you know, also, it's, it's August. So it's August in the 70s. Kids actually Bench. used to play outside. Yeah. You know, why would oh, yeah. you go to a quarry in the summertime? You know, I I don't know why that body wasn't discovered sooner, which is That's another a really reason good I point, thought it dude. was. Yeah. Yeah, it's just another reason I think that the body was eventually moved there. Yeah, 70s wasn't like sitting in front of your computer and talk on your phone. 70s was get your baseball glove, put it on the uh, handlebars of your bike and say, I'll see you tonight for dinner. Yeah. You know, there was always kids out and about, and especially when school let out. That's a good point, man. It's interesting. Uh, good observation. And you actually have, um, you actually have another idea, which you ran by me, and I think it's a fantastic idea. So, are you ready to run that down? Pretty much through doing research on this case, I didn't want to look at just the Palma. You literally can't just look at the Palma. There's so many other cases around that area that you you sort of have to branch out. Even a book talks about Joan Kramer, briefly mentions Caroline Farino, which happened earlier, and uh, it also mentions two girls from Bergen that went missing. And those girls were Lorraine Marie Kelly and Marianne Pryor. So the book just 
doesn't mention only Jeanette De Palma either. It does mention some other girls. So while I was looking into their cases, um, I found out there's literally dozens, dozens of murdered girl cases for that part of Jersey, specifically between the mid '60s and the mid '80s. Gotcha. Surprisingly, there's a lot of a lot of similarities between the girls and the way they were killed, found, and or disappeared. So that led me to look into known serial killers for that area. And I came across uh, Raymond Alves, Richard Cottingham, Willem Doss, Joseph Callinger, Richard Kuklinski, and Robert Zarinsky. So I looked into each of those guys and their MOs and how they would do what they did, which was terrible. But uh, I had to kind of stop when I got to Richard Cottingham because he was very active in those areas. His MO was picking up either girls just walking down the street, hitchhiking, or uh, soliciting for prostitution. That's what he would do. He would pick up these girls in his car, and he claimed to have over the years killed between 80 and 100 girls. Yeah, he's known as the Torso Killer or the Times Square Killer, right? Yeah, he is, but that's also kind of misleading because only three of his 11 victims that, you know, have been verified were really from Manhattan. Most of those girls came from North Jersey. Yeah, he had an arc. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... So he claimed to have murdered between 80 and 100 girls, but he's only on record confessing to uh, 11 murders. And out of He's alive 11, and incarcerated, correct? He is alive and incarcerated, and through uh, one of his victim's biological daughters, who was given up for adoption before her biological mother was murdered, eventually got of age and wanted to investigate her, uh, her real mom and found out she was murdered by this guy. Right. She goes and starts a friendship well, I don't want to say she starts a relationship with this guy, um, writes him, visits him in jail, and it eventually becomes a friendship where she's convinced him to confess to more murders. It's pretty wild. It's, but her mother was decapitated and her hands were cut off. Then she was set ablaze in a hotel room in yeah, Times Square, the, which gave him the Times Square Ripper right. moniker. Yeah, and also but, uh, I think they just just left the torsos at the end, right? Yeah. Like he, so, was, he was big into cutting off heads and hands. Well, only towards the end there. Right. Um, yeah, he has an arc. Right. But I was looking at uh, Dr. Peter Vransky's work, and from what I know about serial killers as well, you have organized serial killers and unorganized serial killers. And it seems that Cottingham started off unorganized and eventually made the jump to organized where he started concentrating more on prostitutes, and his MO sort of shifted into this stabbing and dismemberment phase. But prior to that, it seemed like he was unorganized and that he was an opportunistic killer. Like I said, the girls uh, just walking down the street, hitchhiking or soliciting for prostitution. Like those are all opportunistic ways that this guy would attack. And they were and the almost- timing on that. Like was what he, the timing was like, he started out just on random teenage girls, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and they were in the New Jersey area. Yeah. As South as, I want to say Monmouth County up to a union in the Manhattan. But jet just generally in that area where also Jeanette was. Yes. So his signature was uh, for at least nine of the ones that he admitted to strangulation. So that was his MO was picking up these girls and strangling them. Okay. Uh, so that's, he's admitted to that. And what's bizarre is what we know from Jeanette, what was missing from the crime scene was her purse and her crucifix. Now, before we talk about that, real quick, you were talking about the book. 
And you were talking about the two girls from Bergen that were mentioned in the book. Yeah, so let me explain why I shifted my focus to cutting him out of all these serial killers. Is while I got to him, I found out that these two girls from Bergen, Lorraine Kelly and Ann Pryor, or Mary Ann Pryor, he confessed to their murders less than a year ago. Wow. And that was due to this daughter, the daughter of one of his victims, who more or less befriended him and has convinced him to confess because his health is failing now. He's still alive, but his health is failing. And Jennifer she's trying Weiss to get is her name. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's awesome. But she's yep. trying to get as many confessions out of him as possible before he actually dies. Right. Now right. like like I said, these these two girls died from asphyxiation. He'd confessed to their murders. So they were in the book, but obviously uh Jesse didn't know that Cotton and have done it at that point. No. But it's very yeah. interesting that out of all his victims that he's admitted to anyway, nine of the eleven were strangled. And even more bizarre to me is that three of those were suspected of being strangled with their own crucifixes. Wow. <laughs> a huge red flag. That's a red flag to me because yeah. what's what's missing from the crime scene with Jeanette is her crucifix and her purse. Now, there had been another case where, you know, he was using other possessions of the victims to strangle them. One that he has not admitted to, but I strongly feel that he was also responsible for, was the uh, Caroline Farina. Now, she was strangled with one of her uh, own stockings. The other one was never found, which I feel like he probably takes trophies as well. Um, Well, he did. Yeah, if you watch the Netflix special, they do, uh, because there is a Netflix special about this called Times Square Killer. Um, and Jennifer Weiss is uh, featured in that as well. She's awesome. And um, he did have trophies. He, he did keep trophies. As a matter of fact, they found one of his trophy rooms. That's how they kind of got him. Um, so he, he was a trophy keeper. Yeah, and I just think it's very interesting that that's what was missing from Jeanette's body was her purse and her crucifix. Because who's to say that he didn't try to strangle her with the crucifix and it just broke? And he was like, okay, not, that's what I'll yeah. keep. Or what yeah, if he not decided... Only that, go ahead. Not only that, if you look at all these girls, they all look the same. They do. That's what's bizarre. If you at least look at these girls, the ones that he's actually killed and admitted to, there's a very, there's a very similar... He's got a type. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a type. They're young. They're, you know, dark hair, dark eyes. Uh, bohemian looking. Exactly. Very bohemian. Exactly. Yep. As is Jeanette. Jeanette definitely falls into that category. And when he was cutting his teeth, was right around the time with the with the teenage girls over in Jersey near his house because you know serial killers always always start near their home. Yeah, he he started out at that time. He was still on that kind of like arc of killing teenage girls, random teenage girls too. Exactly. Now with with uh, the Caroline Farina, there was a witness to that as well, not to the actual murder, but a struggle that happened before the girl was discovered. And the description given to that man was tall, short, sandy hair, and about 20 years old. Did the math. Uh, Cottingham was exactly 20, was tall, had a mustache, sandy hair. Um, it's, it's fit in so many ways that he fits perfectly into this case that I can't discount him as a suspect, even though right. you know, nobody else is really talking about that. I just feel like he's a good fit, man. I like that guy for, the, for a suspect right now. Absolutely. No, that's great work by you, man. Yeah. I mean, I know it just happened to be featured kind of like at the same time on Netflix, but I know you, you kind of ran into this by yourself. Yeah. I actually need to watch that uh, documentary because yeah, I was the one that kind of told you about it. Um, Yeah. It's uh, 
That's definitely some some food for thought, man. It absolutely is. So, yeah. you know, those are maybe three possibilities. Um, this case continues to be a mystery. You know, um, there is there are think guy groups out there that are that are looking into it. Uh the Daily Beast article was talking about some Springfield officials who would like to see the case solved. Uh, as to their jurisdiction, I don't know. I don't know whether they have jurisdiction now since, you know, the county prosecutor has it. But, yeah, you know, and we want to do a little bit, uh, expand on this whole Satanist thing a little bit by maybe looking into a couple other cases up there. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the list murders and give everybody some homework, some really bizarre homework. So one of the one of the things that uh, I fell down a rabbit hole when I was looking into all this was the whole list murders. And specifically, I was told by Holly and Ed that there was a movie. It's up on YouTube called The Patricia List Story. For everybody that's out there, um, Patty List was rumored to be having an affair with her drama teacher now that's debatable whether it happened or not and that was in westfield okay uh that gentleman's name her drama coach drama teacher whatever he was is a guy by the name of ed iliano ed is deceased he died but not before he produced and starred in a really bizarre tribute to patty list called the patricia list story so this is widely available on youtube you can check it out uh that is the the title of it the patricia list story and it is a rabbit hole if you think of the fact that the gentleman playing ed iliano in the movie is indeed ed iliano he's playing himself in the movie uh it's one of the most bizarre things i've ever seen in my entire life and if it's not completely in your face (laughs) i don't know what else is so he kind of plays himself up to be you know, a guy who went in and tried to warn the Westfield Police Department that John List was going to do what he was going to do. That's kind of the way he's playing it uh, in the movie. But there's these weird, awkward, romantic encounters between him and Patty in in the movie. Um, <laughs> And it's cringy because she's young, you know, 15, 16 years old, whatever she was. And this gentleman was probably in his 40s when all this was going on. And it is a cringy, cringy, cringy movie. So I would check it out. It's not going to be something you award an Oscar or you're ever going to want to watch again. But you have to watch this. It's called The Patricia List Story. And interestingly enough, when I was talking back and forth with Tracy about it and we started watching the movie, she sent me a blog post about Ed Iliano. Uh, from True Crime Mama, where she interviewed Joe Sharkey about Ed Iliano. And so I started corresponding with Joe Sharkey about a lot of different things. And once again, Joe's a a true crime author. But the first thing he said, I, I said to him, you know, did you know about this film? And I sent him the link. And he emailed me back and said, not only did I not know about it, he goes, I don't know why my name is in the credits. Wow. <laughs> so... Ed Iliano actually has Joe Sharkey's name in the credits, and he Joe went out of his way to say, Mike, I have no affiliation with that film. I don't know why he has my name in the credits. So that was really weird, and that sparked a pretty good conversation back and forth and made it easier for me to talk to Joe. Uh, Joe is a really great guy. He, he felt that Ed never really actually touched her, but uh, we'll probably touch on this a little bit down the line. So if you guys have a chance... 
Go yeah. check it out. The Patricia List story starring Edwin Iliano. And if it sounds like it's, you know, just a completely different subject, I promise you, all these things intertwine. It's so bizarre. It's almost yes, it like is. we got a whole evidence board of these different cases, and we're just trying to wrap some yarn around a thumbtack, <laughs> trying to connect all this shit. But, uh, yeah. yeah, and I, I highly recommend doing some research on uh, Lilith Sinclair. And, man, that's another yeah, fun we'll, rabbit hole. We'll talk about too. Yeah, we'll talk about the Aquinas. I mean, briefly, um, Lil Sinclair was the person that we talked about that could have possibly been at the scene. She was also interrogated in Michael Noel's uh, murder, and then uh, she ran to Lilith Grotto. She later on got married to uh, Michael Aquino, and Michael Aquino, for any anybody that doesn't know, runs the Temple of Set. He was a follower of Anton LaVey, broke off, started his own thing with Lilith temple of set during the 70s and 80s he was on oprah he was on geraldo's show he was always interviewed because he has like the whole theater thing going on he's got the eddie monster haircut he's got the uh, goofy eyebrows that are arched up in the corners you know to kind of look devilish so it's more like a theater thing with him uh same thing with lilith she's got the white makeup on and she's you know yeah. that he, he actually is a, a he's a lieutenant colonel in the army um well he retired and he was in the army reserve but his specialty was um, like propaganda and stuff like that. That was literally what he did in Vietnam. So he, he knows a little bit about the way the human mind works. And remember, I mean, all this satanic stuff, all it is is a grift, right? It's no different than Scientology, right? You, you go to a couple orgies, you get some free drugs. Oh, do you want to become a high priest or you want to get some, some of these younger kids to do your bidding money? You got to pay me $20,000. All these cults are the same thing. It's all a grift, just like most religions are, right? So it's important to keep that in the back of your head. It's not a cult. It's a cult. Exactly. Okay. That's what and, we're trying to drive home here is that, yeah. you know, we believe is a cult could be responsible as opposed to being the victim of a cult ritual. Yeah, the Aquinos are a rabbit hole. I mean, go check it out. There's the whole um, uh, Presidio child molestation case that goes on. Um, pretty much any time Michael Aquino is on and interviewed, he lies. Um, I saw a – he's dead now. He apparently committed suicide and shot himself at his desk. But every time he's on and, you know, he's asked a simple question, what is the temple of set? What are you trying to do? I mean, you guys can go listen to it. I can't figure it out. It's word salad comes out of his mouth. And that's because it's probably just a grift, right? It's probably just let me tell people what they want to hear and get money from them. And he and his wife did a really good job of raising a lot of money over the years. They lived really well, lived out in San Francisco. He lived all over. Um, but he literally was the chaplain for the army for people who were practicing Satanism. There's a website called NewJerseyGirlMurders.org. If you guys feel like going down the uh, cotton ham rabbit hole or looking at other cases, it's uh, not the best looking website, but man, tons of great info. It looks like it's from awesome. 1999, but that's it a has labor great of love. Stuff. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it a is. It's a geoforensic murder map. So you have from 1960 to 1980 color coded murder map. And it's got up to probably about 60 or so case summaries. And it has photos of victims. Uh, talks about exactly what happened, how they were discovered, and which counties were involved in investigating. It's a pretty good site if you guys want to look into Great that. Great resource. Yeah. 
But again, just to compare how similar those girls look is so bizarre. It's almost like they could all be sisters. Like I, I can't really get over is. that, man. Like, yeah, they really. I mean, he definitely had a type Cottingham. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe they get uh, maybe Jennifer Weiss and some some other people. Maybe we can get something moving in that direction to ask this guy if maybe he might be responsible for Jeanette. Who knows? Awesome. Well, that's over with, and we're going to get back to something maybe back into the paranormal realm, maybe a little bit more fun, right? A little bit of a lighter subject. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to take a break from this, man. Yeah, there's a lot of high emotion involved with this case, and, you know, there should be, I guess, um, you know, but, yeah, I'm, I'm welcome in anything that doesn't have to do with Jeanette's palm at this point. <laughs> yeah, if we talk about it again, maybe it'll be on a Patreon show. Yeah, we should definitely have a Patreon show where we talk a little bit more about the ins and outs of all those emails and stuff like that. And, you know, some of the excerpts from Ed's interview will be playing in future shows as well, some of the stuff we took out. But, uh, yeah, if you yep. want to sign up to be a patron, that'd be awesome. Other ways you can support the show is just uh, give us a good review. If you have anything you want to talk about, anything strange. We'd yeah, anybody down in Cumberland County has some of those cool stories. And anybody has any stories about Clinton Road, maybe, and, you know, Richard Cross, if anybody has any stories up there about that, that'd be more than welcome. And, you know, if you do have any information on what happened to Jeanette De Palma, please get together with uh, Justice for Jeanette. Every step.